Welcome to EJB Talks, Rutgers Blaustein School Experts in Policy, Planning, and Health, where we talk with our faculty and staff experts, as well as students, about how the fields of public policy, urban planning, public health, health administration, and public and urban informatics affect your lives. Welcome to EJB Talks. I'm Stuart Shapiro, the Associate Dean of Faculty at the Blaustein School, and the purpose of this podcast is to talk with my colleagues and our alumni about policy, planning, and health, the interaction between these issues, and how they affect people in New Jersey, the United States, and the world. We continue to talk with our new faculty to start this second season of EJB Talks. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Will Payne, who is among our newest faculty and is part of our nationally ranked urban planning program. Professor Payne, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So you you just joined us. You just finished your dissertation, uh, and that dissertation looks at Consumer rating services, which for those of us that are a bit older remember Zagat's, um, the restaurant reviews in the old media, and people today would be more familiar with Yelp. Um, how'd you get interested in this subject, in this area? Yeah, you know, it seems like it, it might be kind of an a unusual topic or something that kind of leaps from the everyday into more academic theoretical interest. But I have to say that it was something that I started to notice in the world around me and then uh, kind of started to scratch that itch and, and start exploring, you know, what sort of work had been done. So maybe I'll back up and say, you know, my undergraduate degree was in the humanities. I, I was studying history and literature, actually with a focus on 19th century German intellectual history and its interpretation in the United States. So quite different, you might you might guess. But at the same time, I was I was taking graduate seminars in landscape architecture and, and planning, um, looking at cities as both built environments and also as kind of cybernetic self-regulating systems. And so this was kind of in the back of my mind, uh, but I didn't go straight through to academia. Uh, after graduating, I worked as a documentary filmmaker and a producer in San Francisco um, for Current TV. So I'm not sure. Are you familiar with Current TV at all? Uh, I've heard of it, but I, I don't know much. Sure. So it was a, uh, was, it don't, no longer exists. It was a short form television network founded by former Vice President Al Gore. And it essentially tried to combine MTV, uh, proto YouTube. It actually predated YouTube a little bit. And, uh, PBS, I would say. It it was trying to get young people interested in issues of sustainability, politics, art, culture, with user-generated content, with videos that people would upload to the internet, vote on, and then choose what would go on television. So it was this very interesting crossover between, I mean, I guess cable television is not necessarily old media, but maybe for my generation, it feels like old media, right. uh, with this new kind of web 2.0 user-generated content. So, you know, I moved to the Bay Area from the East Coast. I'm actually from, from the Northeast. Um, and I was living out there and I really had a front row seat to the, the rise of this kind of social media of user-generated content, crowdsourcing. And as a geographer, you know, geolocated media uh, became more and more important. So the idea that specific social media utterances, tweets, the like, would have a, a, a location associated with them. And at the same time, I was living in the Mission District, which, you know, now as in as then, it's been a kind of 
hotbed of gentrification since at least the 1980s. Um, and I was starting to see the ways that technology, food, culture, and uh, housing were all sort of intertwined. So to give you one example, um, I knew there was a, a condominium that was given the nickname the gentrification station, kind of <laughs> self-ironically. That was a group of Google engineers living um, right off of Mission Street um, in you know, a fairly mixed income, fairly Hispanic immigrant community. And across the street from them, there is a, a restaurant called Mission Street Food that later kind of birthed Mission Chinese Food and expanded to New York. And But at that moment, they took essentially a taco truck and were doing uh, sort of upscale junk food, essentially, from that location. But it was this moving moving truck and they were using things like Twitter to say, we're going to be at this corner at this time. We're going to be over here. And at the same time, Yelp had just started. So people were starting to get more into these local reviews. And I was seeing that this was a new way of associating data with urban space uh, around amenities. So that was when I started to see, oh, there's something going on here and I need um, more of a, a, a toolkit rooted in the academy to kind of understand these relationships further. So that's when I started the PhD process at, in geography at UC Berkeley um, and continued along that path, you know, for, for the following years. And then also expanding into the kind of GIS and spatial data science methodology area as well. So you've, you've teased this a little bit, but I'd like to make it more explicit, particularly for people that might might come and study here or get a master's degree here. Um, what does all this have to do with urban planning? That's a great question. And I think uh, one of the fun things for me, again, and maybe it's my historical training, is looking back at earlier um, kind of constellations of, of um, the built environment and informational environment and seeing these similar themes replaying. So at some point with the dissertation, you, you always have to, you have to have to give yourself a start and an end date. Otherwise you could go forever. Yep. But there were points in time where I was looking at, you know, the first guidebook to the grand tour in Europe. So a woman named Mariana Stark, a kind of upper middle-class British woman uh, invented the star rating actually in going around Europe and, and um, you know, putting different cultural attractions, giving them stars. Uh, but what's interesting, you know, and kind of a, has a resonance today is that her, her innovation was, you know, ruthlessly copied by the Baedeker family uh, and then they turned it into this huge business, but she doesn't really get a lot of credit. But so I was looking at these kind of past ways of understanding the city as more than just, you know, economic agglomerations, but also as sites of display cultural sorting, cultural fusions, and figuring out, well, how do individuals make sense of the city? How do they, how do they make their way through it, especially in a kind of tourist sense, um, when you're not familiar, you're not purely in one community? And I'd say another big ex uh, influence early on was looking at urban sociologist Sharon Zukin's work on consumption and gentrification. So looking at third spaces like restaurants and cafes, small retail stores, and really seeing these as kind of a dialectic where they're both an indicator that a neighborhood is changing. If you see a fancy coffee shop in, an, in a neighborhood, that's a sense that, okay, this might have a slightly different clientele than 10, 20 years ago, but that these are also driving forces in that change. They become marketable amenities for realtors, for developers, um, for landlords. And so taking that 
kind of focus on that interconnection, um, but then also looking at the shifting affordances of different informational technologies. So what what means do consumers have to discover these places, share them, and then their spatial context and relationships? So it helps predict gentrification and also helps us understand how people react and behave in response to it. Exactly. And it, it's changed quite a bit, both in quantity and quality over the years. And so doing some of this historical work on the Zagat survey, it was a really interesting moment kind of figuring out that there's a specific dinner. So Tim and Nina Zagat uh, were, you know, fairly elite lawyers. You know, they met at Yale Law School. Nina was one of the first um, female students there in the kind of uh, 1960s. And essentially, they were these gourmets in New York. They had all these friends in the law, legal, banking, art world, very connected people, very social. And they were all grumbling about how the New York Times was not producing reviews fast enough. There was this whole kind of post-industrial, uh, post-industrial professional services class. Uh, people like Saskia Sassen have written really um, compellingly about that shift in, in New York. And these people, you know, eating out was not just a personal interest. It was also a business need. It was advancing their careers. And they felt that the existing informational infrastructure wasn't good enough. So this idea of having their friends fill out surveys, which is the methodology that they pioneered, that you can draw a direct line to Yelp today, the idea that amateurs could just give their opinions and in aggregate, you know, the statistical aggregation would produce this kind of added value. Um, that was their response. Uh, it's actually interesting talking in election season because one of the things that Tim points to behind this idea uh, was his experience working on the Lyndon Johnson campaign, uh, the presidential campaign, in opinion polling. So there's this way that kind of social science and policy and pol political research then kind of inform the personal lives of these, these very educated um, sort of bureaucrats, essentially. And so how does that professional and personal life start to bleed into each other and then start to affect the actual built form of the city? That's, that's interesting. And of course, now we have, you know, data on, and we'll live through this on election night, data on these polling preference, on the presidential preferences and on demographic information and such that are so finely grained that we can understand what's happening at a much deeper level in elections as well. Absolutely. Um, let me uh, let me turn. There was an aspect of your uh, your dissertation I found particularly fascinating about how the content moderation policies of Yelp and other online rating services um, really can become quite political. Um, and you know, when I go and I review a restaurant, I don't think at all that this is a, a political action that I'm taking, and I'm pretty politically in tuned. How does this happen, and what are the implications of it? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about this because it's actually, you know, it's kind of latent in the dissertation, but I think this is a, a topic I'd like to explore more in the coming years, especially seeing the way that in the broader culture, this kind of everything is enlisted in the political, you know, we're speaking in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and the way that reactions to you know, whether or not a waiter tells you to put a mask on, you know, that becomes now fair game for people in, in these local reviews. Um, but I think that the starting point to really understand this is that 
none of these platforms operate in a vacuum. And so if you look at, so one example that's not about politics, but is kind of analogous, if you think about how do you rate something, that's changed dramatically from, say, the 1970s to the present. If you think about the gold standard before the Zagat Guide, something like the Michelin Guide, and that's really based on this kind of absolute quality, sort of like the hotel stars where you have to have a certain things and certain measurements uh, on an absolute scale to get these higher higher star counts. You have to have a great wine cellar. You have to have you know, a, a motor D taking you to the table. And that really starts to fall apart gradually. And then I see where it really falls apart is in the kind of post-Amazon years where there's this reviewing culture that we're accustomed to that is completely floating in space. You know, if I rate a pencil sharpener on Amazon a five and I rate, you know, a fine carpet a four, I'm not saying that the pencil sharpener is better than the carpet. I'm saying it's good at being a pencil sharpener. And that's migrated out to restaurant reviewing practices. And it's actually something that I, I see sort of gamed in, in the ways that uh, local businesses, especially in kind of um, smaller markets. I, I, you know, I tra- I'm an academic. I, before COVID at least, traveled quite a bit for conferences and, and talks. And when you go to smaller cities, I was in Colorado Springs, and then the way that the coffee shops there and the donut shops and the taco trucks were set up um, to optimize for this kind of floating ranking. It's like I could open a donut place and get five out of five stars and attract hundreds of people. Why would I open a fine dining restaurant? What's the marginal return? Um, and then given what we know about these businesses and the kind of labor inputs, um, you sort of see the way that that reviewing practice then has a feedback effect on actual business decisions. And I think the political aspect is similar. So if you look at techniques like brigading, so a lot of internet users all kind of joining forces to target and harass, uh, you see that start in places like the Chans, 4chan, 8chan, et cetera. You see it in Reddit. And that's really migrated over to other places where they, they wouldn't have existed before. So Facebook, Twitter, and even a place like Yelp. So you can see when there's an outrage about uh, maybe a conservative media personality gets booed at a restaurant, and then all of a sudden, hundreds of angry trolls, if you will, um, flood that page with negative reviews. So I think it puts places like Yelp in an interesting position where they're trying to ensure that what they what they have on the page reflects what they call a real consumer experience. But that's clearly not, you know, that's not set in stone. That's not on, you know, Moses's tablets. Like that's open to interpretation and, and dispute. And so things like incidents of racism, uh, you know, Yelp has started to take a bit more of a stand on, you know, um, if, if, if racism by staff or owners of a restaurant, making sure that that is not kind of bracketed out. But these are all sort of open to, you know, contestation. And I see that that's where we're at right now. I mean, our so our restaurants and our books and the reviews of them are becoming polarized just as the rest of us are. Yeah, exactly. And and I think there are automated solutions, which, um, you know, I've also done some work on um, the service Nextdoor, the local social network. And, you know, they have this famous solution where, <laughs> and it's actually funny, I looked at the the code that was driving their their page. And when you went to post something, it would check your post and it would check it against a 
uh, a list called racewords.json. So some, <laughs> some poor engineer next door had to come up with all of these words that are associated with racist you know, or hate speech mm-hmm. and then put it in a file that then you know, the, the software would say, ooh, wait a second, we think you used a race word. We're going to put you in a different flow where we say, are you sure you want to post that? Can you post in a different way? Can you post additional details? But again, you know, that sort of algorithmic approach uh, has some benefits in keeping costs low, but it also, it's not perfect and it can miss a lot of nuance in, in you know, in actual, you know, human speech and expression. So what's, what's the future of using these techniques, these data sources to think about urban planning issues? What are some other examples of where we might be able to use this uh, in uh, urban, for urban planners of the future? Yeah, well, I think, you know, so far I've mentioned some of these kind of negative externalities. So things like gentrification or political hate speech. But I think it's worth remembering that these tools exist to solve real problems. And I always think about, um, for example, you know, if I have dietary restrictions or, um, you know, if I'm a vegan in 2020, I'm in a better world than I am in 2020. 2000 or 1980. And part of that is this ability to kind of find things that work for me. Um, Another thing you see is with accessibility. So, and both Google and Yelp have put a lot of stock behind this and in their PR efforts. But I think there is a kind of kernel there of, I want to know if there's um, a ramp, if I can get into the building, I want to know if there is going to be uh, an all gender restroom. So if I can have that information available before I venture out into the world, this is a way that kind of better access to spatial data can result in more equitable um, cities that serve the needs of everyone. Um, And I think this user-generated model, because of the lower labor costs, because it's kind of that cybernetic idea of picking up on changes in information very sensitively, it, it has its drawbacks, but I think it also enables us to kind of um, both study the city in a new way, but also live in it in potentially uh, a more sensitive way and a more kind of real-time feedback to the city. Uh, I'm glad you pointed that out because we do spend so much time worrying about the negative implications. I mean, just yesterday, Google, uh, Department of Justice went after Google for antitrust. Um, that's going to drag out over a 10-year period or so. <laughs> But we worry about, you know, the power of Google, the power of Amazon. We worry about privacy. And those are all legitimate fears. But in doing that, we tend to forget a lot about how much, how many more doors these technology platforms have opened up. And that's many of those doors can be in the service of social justice, equality, et cetera. I mean, they don't have to be, but they certainly have that potential. Yeah, or if you look at, you know, even within academia, the the remote conference model, the remote talks. I think there was a lot of uh, panic early on about how do we adapt to COVID. But what we've seen in a lot of cases is that people who had issues with mobility, graduate students, people with kids, people you know with fixed resources, this enables you to be part of scholarly conversations around the world. So I think there's that similar, you know, finding that that kernel uh, of what what do we preserve after we, you know, hopefully turn the corner on this pandemic. And Mm -hmm. I I would hope that that's one of the the issues. I should mention that uh, I think I was uh, wrapping up the dissertation in the early stages of the pandemic. 
And I found myself, my initial kind of conclusion was, wow, these technologies are only growing in importance. They're being incorporated into augmented reality and voice assistance. And this becomes a, an ever greater part of this kind of technology, real estate and consumption um, sort of nexus. And COVID has really called a few of those linkages into question, if, if not forever, at least in the short term. So, you know, Yelp laid off 17% of their employees in April and furloughed quite a few more. And the revenue that, you know, if you think about how these companies make money, it's advertising from small businesses. And as small businesses continue to suffer without real relief from the federal government, um, this sort of <laughs> parasitic layer on top of that, you know, this professional services for these local business owners are also hurting. And I think some of the kind of grand grandstanding and, you know, exciting trends in, in some of these areas might be delayed by a few years based on what we would have seen in, say, January or February. That's possible. On the other hand, where would small businesses be if they didn't have Amazon as a platform to sell on as well right now? Right. And, and Yelp to tell people on Google Maps and Yelp to tell people this business is open doing takeout. This one has yeah. outdoor seating. You can that's do contactless exactly delivery. Right. So again, that's kind of the flip side here where, you know, the revenue is down. But can you imagine if we had this pandemic in 1980 and right. people are saying, why would I go to a restaurant right now? And now they can say, oh, actually, I can get, you know, this really good takeout, you know, pre-cooked meal for two people. I can, you know, places here in Highland Park, New Jersey uh, are, you know, pivoting to groceries and, you know, find coffee beans or finding other ways to kind of, you know, make up that revenue. Um, and I think having that direct connection to to your, your customers um, hopefully is giving them a lifeline in the absence of, you know, the federal government doing their job, to be quite honest. Yep. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And uh, we could go off on a tangent on creative destruction here, but we are running out of time. Um, can you, uh, when we wrap up by asking you sort of, where are you going now with your research? What questions do you plan on looking at? Yeah, so I think we, we touched on a few of those. So I think seeing what the future of the dissertation research is, whether that's a book, whether it's a series of articles, um, exploring this political speech angle a little bit more. I have a presentation coming up in the early part of 2021 uh, and a paper coming out of that. And then I think there's sort of a question mark on to what extent the this changes that I've witnessed already with, with COVID and local reviews, to what extent that continues forward. So I think that's kind of an open site. And then, you know, there's this whole other track of my research that's on methodological experimentation, kind of nonlinear distance mapping, spatial data science, and um, which also relates back to some of my teaching uh, at the Blaustein School as well in, in GIS and mapping. So I think there's a lot of exciting paths to go down. And honestly, with uh, two under fives in the home and being sure. in a brand new coast, I think uh, there's there's no shortage of things to do. Let me put it that way. <laughs> for sure. Well, as you do all that stuff, we'll have you back on here to discuss it. Thank you so much for coming on today. All right. Thank you, Stuart. Appreciate it. Also, a big thank you to our production team, Amy Cobb and Karen Olson. We'll be back next week with another talk, I believe the last in this series, uh, of our new faculty members at the Blaustein School. Uh, until then, stay safe. <laughs>